0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa. Politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. We dedicate this episode to the memory of our friend and colleague, Alex Tawanda Magaisa. Zimbabwean academic and political analyst who passed away on June 5th, 2022. May his soul rest in peace. In every country's history, there are moments when the populations, young and old, must face their destiny and stand up against tyranny or any other forms of abuses that hold back progress. Over the last several years, we have witnessed such moments across Africa with popular uprisings and movements. From the Arab Spring that started in Tunisia to Senegal's Yanamar, Burkina Faso's Ballet Citoyen, Zimbabwe's This Flag, South Africa's Fees Must Fall, DRC's Lucha, and Uganda's People's Movement. The peoples of Africa, particularly the youths, have stood up to demand change, democracy, and better life. They demand the respect of the social contract. They demand good governance and responsive leadership. It is a tough process, to say the least. These movements face daunting challenges. The autocratic regimes mount their own resistance. They fight back, jail, and kill. And the abuses go on. But the movements also save a little and sometimes big victories. A luta continua... Victoria Eserta is a common refrain from this movement and young people. Joining me today on Into Africa is Mr. Ivan Mawarire. Ivan is a Zimbabwean pastor and civil rights activist. He is best known as the founder of the This Flag Peaceful Protest Movement, which utilized the Zimbabwean flag as a symbol of national pride in a social media campaign to ignite public demand for accountability of the government's widespread corruption and abuse of office. This flag was instrumental in the protest that led to Robert Mugabe's resignation. As a result of his work, Mr. Mawariwe was imprisoned and tortured in 2016, 2017, and 2019, and charged with treason, facing 80 years in prison.
1: Welcome, Ivan Mawarire. Bemba, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be speaking to you and speaking to a fellow African as well, and just listening to the list of movements you are talking about brought back memories of the work we did in zimbabwe but most importantly i think just re the passion i have for the peoples of my continent so thank you again for having me today
0: it's a pleasure and an honor really to have you we've read about your work we have admired what you've been doing for your country with your people how did you even start in this process on one side i know you're a pastor so you're a man of the cloth a man of god a man of peace mm. But yet you unleash some fury through social media. How did that come about?
1: I still ask myself that question many times in my journey. How did that end up here? How did that come about? But I was frustrated in Vemba with the way things were happening in Zimbabwe. You know, at the time, I think I was 38, 39 years old. I had two kids, young kids. I had a third one on the way. And I was failing to put food on the table for my family. I was failing to pay for their kindergarten fees. And I I remember thinking to myself, this cannot be the way that my children start their life out. And this cannot be the story of how Ivan has failed to live in his own country, to build a proud country and leave a proud legacy for his children. So I didn't know what else to do, and I just spoke up. I remember that day so clearly. It was April 19, 2016. I propped up my phone against my Bible in my office after a tough day, and I just spoke into that video, and I just spoke about why it's important for Zimbabweans to say something about the state of their country and not to keep quiet. And I think part of what I was talking about was saying, play your part. What will you tell your children 20 years from now when they ask you, what did you do? That's how that started. That video went viral and began to ignite conversations and discussions with Zimbabweans. And uh, of course, you know, as they say, the rest is history. A journey began from there. We carried on to achieve some of the things that we achieved.
0: Very good. Impressive. So you think it was about the challenges of life, really, that you were facing that triggered this? And that supposes also that many of your countrymen were facing the same challenges. But as a pastor, how do you reconcile the two sides to you? The side that is the church, the Bible, the gospel, and the sides that mm. incited or mobilized or help inspire people to take to the
1: street? I think, remember the way I look at it, I feel that it is the, it is the two sides of the same coin. Because as a pastor, part of my job is to not just shepherd the souls of people through scripture, but to also offer the practical approach to how do we solve some of the issues that our society is facing. As a pastor, it's my job to understand the moral authority that I carry to call out what is immoral, to speak out against injustice. In fact, in Proverbs, the Bible speaks about that and it says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, defend the cause of the weak and defend the orphans and the widows. So this is for me really a, an animation of that office of a pastor where you are going beyond just your pulpit and you're beginning to say, let's live out what we believe. If there's injustice, we call out injustice. If there's corruption, we call out corruption. And we advocate for better leadership. We advocate for the saving of lives. We advocate for dignity. And I think that's part of what has continued to move me, to try and return the dignity of the lives of the people of my nation.
0: So it was not about theology of liberation. You were not reading your fellow men and women of God in Latin America or were there specific characters to the scriptures? that stood out in your mind that you sought to emulate?
1: Oh no, at that time, not at all. At that time, this was a a personal response to a crisis that I knew was not affecting just me. One of the ways in which a pastor should really engage their community is to understand that whatever affects him personally is affecting many other people that are living in the same space as he is. And therefore, because he or she has a voice and has an office to to address some of these things, should do so on behalf of people. So I did it where I realized that, wait, this is in my home. This is happening to me. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take this up on behalf of other people as well. I'm going to speak up, knowing that there are some other people who are going through this. And I think that was the motivation. I then began to read, of course, about some of the other actors over the years now who have done some of these things, whether it's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others. But at that moment, it really was a sense of duty concerning my own life and concerning the values that I believe in as a pastor. And I think trying to get a certain congruency. Let me say that I think there was an internal incongruency about being silent concerning the things that I was seeing happening in in Zimbabwe. So silence is complicity. Oh, absolutely it is. If you see something happening which is unjust and you decide to keep quiet, you are gifting the injustice. You are allowing the injustice to exist in a space where it shouldn't. You are allowing it to go unchallenged. You are allowing it to be affirmed. You are allowing it to be legitimate uh, in its existence. I think for me, that's been part of the discovery that One of the purposes of having the opportunity to be a living being in a community is to make sure that you represent what needs to be represented. You speak up, you say something, you you advocate for something. You, as they say, if you don't stand for anything, you will fall for everything.
0: Very good. Pretty passionate there. I just want to read this sentence. You tell me what it brings to mind. And this is from this flag. I think your early video, and I quote, every day that it flies is begging for you to get involved, to say something, to cry out and say, why must we be in this situation? End of quote.
1: Mm. I have to tell you that hearing that quote takes me back home. It's... You know, I I suddenly, every time I have watched that video or heard excerpts from that video, like you've said, it makes me want to cry because we are a people that have lost a sense of pride because of what has been done to us. And for me, the understanding has been that nobody fights for Zimbabwe like a Zimbabwean does. Nobody else can fight for your nation the way you do. No one else can be more passionate about your people, the lives of your people than you are. And that was what was driving that statement. To say, when we see our flag fly, it's not enough to hang your head in shame and walk away. You have to hear what it is saying when it's flying. It's saying, save me from being a fraud. Save me from the brokenness. Save me from the embarrassment that I bring to you when you are seen internationally in other nations. Because remember, this had become the portion of Zimbabweans and still is even now. When we travel to other nations, people look at us and they shake their heads in pity. When you are going through airports and customs officers and uh, border patrol officers see your passport and immediately you are flagged down for further questioning. You are being asked, where did you get your visa? You are being asked, why are you here? And you are being asked all these questions because they understand that you are coming from a broken place and it is likely you are running away and you're trying to find a home in their land. It's embarrassing. It's dehumanizing. And so for me, the idea was when we see the flag of Zimbabwe, I don't want us as Zimbabweans to be embarrassed or to feel ashamed. Let's begin to love that country enough and to speak up for it and say, I may not like what has happened in my country, but I love that country and I I have a vision for it. I have a desire for it. Every Zimbabwean, if you speak to them, they'll tell you something about what they wish Zimbabwe was. And for me, joining all those little narratives of what every Zimbabwean wishes home was like is what this movement was about.
0: So the movement was inspired by the flag, by the challenges that you faced at the time. How did the movement connect with the rest of the other movements across Africa? Because all over the continent now, we see a high level of consciousness of the youth particularly.
1: I think there was a resonance with many young Africans because they recognized that part of the struggle that we were now speaking up against, part of the struggle that we were now engaging in in Zimbabwe was a struggle of fighting for freedom from people that were supposed to be our liberators. And we are living in nations, young Zimbabweans and young Africans recognize that we are living in nations that gained their self-rule or independence from colonial rule years ago. And yet... We still live in abject poverty and yet a high percentage of young people still want to leave home and go elsewhere because home no longer provides them the opportunity that it is supposed to provide for those that live there. And I think a lot of young Africans recognize that same need within them or that same struggle within them that said, why am I poor in my own country? Why am I led by a group of people who are selfish, who are enriching themselves, and I get nothing out of it? And so there was a resonance, and I believe there will continue to be a resonance across the African continent until we start remedying this issue and this problem of a young people that are not finding opportunities to dream, opportunities to succeed, to prosper, to engage their ideas. We're going to continue to see this.
0: Is there any connection, if you reached out or if they reached out, the other movement around the continent. Is there any such thing as a platform where the various youth movement convene or
1: interact? Yes, there actually is. When we began in 2016, I was very new to activism. I was new to the civic society space. I was new to engaging the democratic process in the country and so it took some time for us to learn to be connected and to learn solidarity. But eventually we did and we became a part of a group that is called Africans Rising, which comprises of many activists and many different kind of you know movements and citizens movements and campaigns. It became a wonderful place of exchanging ideas, a wonderful place of solidarity and encouragement, a wonderful place of training. And I think just supporting each other as we go through these different struggles.
0: That's good to know. I think solidarity, there's always strength in numbers that I think as a pastor, the term you use in church is fellowship, the fellowship of community. You know, Zimbabwe is some of the younger countries in terms of freedom movement, right? Independence came late, so 1980. So it was the youngsters of that independence movement. They brought in the rear, along with South Africa and Namibia. Are there any Pan-Africanists activists or leaders that inspired you? I mean, you don't have to go very far, I suppose, being a Zimbabwean, but just in the larger history of independence movement across the continent, is there any particular leaders who stood out for you, whether they're political or activists or any other?
1: I believe there are many. First of all, as a pastor, I have to single out a fellow man of the cloth, the late great Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who for me was a figure that chose to play a role as the healing balm of his nation after the scourge of apartheid and how he continued to, even during the struggle for freedom in South Africa, continued to work as a mediator, continued to work as a helper and uh, as a voice of reason. And so his life's work has remained very inspiring, uh, inspiring to me. Of course, again in South Africa, Nelson Mandela, but looking further afield and in years gone past, Julius Nyerere, and just looking at the efforts that they put in to see a freer and a more united Africa, to see an Africa that is proud of itself and that wants to do well for the future generations. If if there's anything that captivates me, about those figures is their vision of a young people in the future that they needed to prepare for, a generation in the future that they needed to win their nations for. Very good. What are some of the challenges that you see that the youth across
0: the continent, this movement are facing? You have been in the trenches, figuratively speaking. I know different countries have different experiences, but there are also commonalities among those experiences. After all, they're all fighting autocratic systems, uh, dictatorships and stuff, so the similarities as well among those dictatorships. What are some of the challenges that they're facing and what should the world, those of us sitting in Washington, people sitting at the State Department, people sitting in the U.S. Congress, people want to help. I understand, of course, Africans have to do the fight, Africans have to free themselves. But nobody ever free themselves by themselves. It doesn't exist. Even the United States had friends. When Mm. Jefferson and Washington and others were fighting, they got help from other countries as well. France, Poland, you in Washington now, if you go next to the White House, they all kind of monument to all kind of foreigners who had helped the United States. Washington is replete Mm. with such monument. So nobody ever fights for the independence alone. There's always help somewhere, whether it's mental, spiritual, otherwise. So what are some of the challenges for our audience who are listening there? They're asking, okay, so what are the challenges? Why this movement just don't finalize and achieve the goals that they need to achieve?
1: Thank you for this really good question. I want to agree with you when you say that nobody fights alone. You do it with friends. And I think that's a very powerful concept. The concept of not just solidarity, but the concept of networked assistance and help. One of the things that we see happening across the world is a networked authoritarianism project. You can see that autocrats and those that run authoritarian regimes are now working together and supporting each other. They are exporting ideas of repression from one nation to another. And I think the same needs to happen with movements that young people are building to be able to network, not just across the continent, but across the world, because the problem of repression is now really the same in terms of the tools and the tactics being used. So in terms of what can be done, first of all, it's important for the world to understand that when they give an ear or audience to some of the leaders of our regimes. They are legitimizing who these people are and what they do. There must always be an unequivocal calling out of what these people do to their nations, of what they do to their people. And there must never be, in the name of diplomacy, there must never be a cushioning or there must never be a soft hand. I think authoritarianism uh, understands the language of directness and the language of being confronted because that's what they do. So, So I think first and foremost, there must always be a calling out of these people and the things that they do. Secondly, there is a requirement by many young people in movements to be supported through funding and through training. And sometimes people have said to us, well, you know, I think that you should not be funded because now you are doing the bidding of those who fund you. And I I think that there is is a level of disingenuousness in some of those comments because authoritarian regimes themselves are funded. They receive money from different places and different organizations. Why shouldn't social movements and uh, civic society organizations also receive the kind of funding they need? to capacitate their programs. We ran our movement with no funding for almost four years. We were able to put together campaigns and sustain the work we were doing without any funding. Part of it was also a model for us. We didn't want to have funding at the beginning of it. But I think that it's important to sustain these movements and to get them to places where they are effective in affecting policy, because it's one thing to put together a protest. It's another thing to be able to affect policy and actually begin to bring change. So I think this capacitation is definitely needed, that the process may be long. And sometimes people get tired of change not coming in a region. But it cannot happen overnight sometimes, even in cases where you have a sudden and change overnight, there is still a process that needs to be walked, a process that needs to be played out. So I think there is a request to walk patiently but purposefully with these social movements, with young people who have ideas of change have ideas of transformation. And it's not just transformation in the political sense. It's transformation in the entrepreneurial side of things. There's so many ideas. Africa is rich with ideas. We see so many international companies wanting to come to develop certain things in Africa, but simply for the market and not so much for the people. And so I think there is also a call to take African ideas and businesses and entrepreneurs and, and and all these, I take them seriously for what they can do for African people and also for what they can do for the world. So I think for me, those approaches of coming in to say we want to purposefully And patiently support civic society purposefully and patiently support actors who are involved in social movements and doing the same thing as well for those who are trying to lift themselves out of poverty through business, through ideas to invest in that. So I'm really putting a plug here to say focus on Africa, not just for what you can get out of it, but for what Africans can contribute back into their own lives and ultimately what they can contribute globally. Very,
0: uh, very insightful there. Sticking a little bit to your country, Zimbabwe, specifically, we are preparing, the world is looking to see what happened in 2023. Zimbabwe is scheduled to have elections. What are you hoping for these presidential elections? Do you think they will happen? What is the state of preparation of these elections?
1: Vemba, it's... um Unfortunately, not always an exciting time when we are going towards elections in Zimbabwe because of the things that we know will happen. These are things that have happened historically, and you can almost predict what's going to happen. When you look at the new regime that came in, the new administration under Emerson Munangagwa, one of the first things they did on their very first elections was to operate with violence and to operate with intimidation. And of course, the elections themselves to operate with that uh, approach of rigging the elections. And looking forward to 2023, As much as I am an optimist, I have to put up the red flag that says already we are seeing that there will be violence that has taken place already in Zimbabwe over the last couple of months when there were by elections for the members of parliament who were illegally recalled from parliament, by the way, already the violence began. But you can also see in the setup of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, which is not an independent body when you see how it is constituted. You can already see them putting in place the mechanisms for an election that is not going to be free and that is not going to be fair. So if you are asking me what is the expectation of what's going to happen, I can tell you that PF is going to attempt to steal the election. In fact, they have begun the process already. That's definitely going to happen. I can tell you that PF is going to intimidate people. They are going to operate through violence because that is what they have always done since Robert Mugabe and of course with this new president as well. The expectation is that the opposition, which thankfully has begun to research meaningfully, will have a very good chance. The issues that are prevailing in Zimbabwe, the socioeconomic issues happening in Zimbabwe will always decampaign ZANU-PF. They will always decampaign those that have run the country for the last 40, uh, we're getting now on to 41, 42 years in Zimbabwe. And so there is once again a good opportunity for the opposition to inspire people around a new vision, to inspire the young people around what Zimbabwe could become. The opportunity is in registering as many young people as we can to vote, driving those millions of young people to the ballot box and overwhelming any attempt to rig the election. When we look to the north of our country, we see a country there called Zambia. And something happened in Zambia that is giving us inspiration that it is possible too in Zimbabwe. I'm hoping, Vemba, that those that gathered around the outgoing president of Zambia and spoke sense to him will also be able to do the same and gather around Emerson Munangagwa when he loses the election, because he lost the election in 2018 again. Ivan, do you think he will lose the election this time? At least that's what you're working towards. I think he is losing the election as we speak because he's failing to put young people to work. He's failing to convert the natural resources that Zimbabwe has to become prosperity for the majority of Zimbabweans and is only allowing a few people to benefit from them. Remember, we had a situation where someone was caught with upwards of seven, eight, nine kilograms of gold at the airport in Zimbabwe, wanting to leave the airport. And when that person was arrested, they were then let go within a few hours. And within a few days, they were confirmed as the president of the Gold Miners Association. The same person.
0: Ah, okay. He's he's being very entrepreneurial, shall we say. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) So so look, I mean, so from from that perspective, he's not electable. People understand. People in Zimbabwe, I think part of what we achieved with this flag and what continues to obtain now in Zimbabwe is people, ordinary people are now engaging in the issues and they are translating them to what governance means and translating the issues to what kind of governance they would like. And because of that, he is going to lose the election in 2023. Accepting the loss is a different point, but losing is definite. So on that point, is
0: the international community doing enough to hold the Zimbabwean government accountable? That's question one. And question two, what is your position vis-a-vis U.S. sanctions against Zimbabwe is an extension of that accountability. And are these sanctions working?
1: I think that the international community has done a lot over the years. Under Robert Mugabe, the international community gathered around the Zimbabwean issue. I have to take a moment to say this before I move on with answering the rest of your question uh, on sanctions. One of the biggest letdowns for Zimbabwe is that part of the international community that we expected to, and still expect, to be first movers in helping Zimbabwe to be safer, to be more democratic, and to be a nation that can exist amongst the community of other nations. The nations in Africa, remember, those nations in Africa, particularly the region, the Sadak region, has failed over and over and over again to condemn the injustices that take place in Zimbabwe, the blatant abuses of Zimbabwean citizens by their government, the Sadak region has failed to issue a pointed and a morally correct statement concerning some of these things. They have not done it. They have either been silent or sometimes they have actually stood with the Zimbabwean government and supported them. So there's been a letdown from the international community in terms of our immediate region, our immediate community of nations. There's also been a failure from the continental body. The African Union under Robert Mugabe, instead of directly saying to Robert Mugabe, you can't kill people, you can't shoot people, you cannot do the things you're doing, they would lionize him instead and treated him as some elder statesman. And there are still people today that do that for Robert Mugabe. The man murdered people. The man destroyed a country. You have got to understand understand that. But then there's the rest of the international community which really has come to Zimbabwe's aid by wanting to support a nation to be more democratic, to be freer, to be a nation that respects human rights. And they have supported Zimbabwe through different development programs. They've given aid to Zimbabwe. And I think there's a lot of debate about all of that. And I think that they have done a lot. However, more needs to be done. More needs to be done for Zimbabwe. I think that the capacitation of opposition movements and the capacitation of democratic movement needs to be stepped up. And there should be no fear of that, of saying, no, we are trying to promote a nation that has a balance of ideas that are contested or that contest. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But moving on to your question about sanctions in Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwean government under Robert Mugabe successfully spun this idea that sanctions are hurting Zimbabweans. And I think part of what then happened was that the sanctions have now been made to target specific individuals and not so much the people of Zimbabwe themselves. What is bigger than sanctions in Zimbabwe in terms of what is hurting Zimbabwe more than sanctions are the sanctions that our own government places on its own people. So I think that there is a need to understand that when individuals are sanctioned, for example, if certain individuals that are in government are either barred from entering certain countries or are barred from accessing some of the assets that they have bought for themselves personally in those countries, those are sanctions. Why should those people go and enjoy freedom in nations that promote freedom and yet suppress freedom in their own countries?
0: So U.S. sanctions, your sense of them, are they
1: working? I think that they are working in that they put pressure on the Zimbabwean government to understand that they cannot run a country and expect that everyone keeps quiet. So it puts pressure on them.
0: We're coming to the end of our program here, but I want to ask you just quickly before we close. In Washington, there's a sense in certain quarters that a lot of money has been spent in supporting civil society, but things are taking too long to change. And sometimes they talk about Zimbabwe fatigue. Are you optimistic about civil society organizations in Zimbabwe?
1: I think that we do not have an alternative when it comes to being optimistic concerning civic society in Zimbabwe. It is literally the only hope that we have in terms of constant pressure on the Zimbabwean government and the Zimbabwean government understands this and I'll tell you how they understand it. Sitting in our parliament right now is a private voluntary organization bill, the PVO bill, In 2004, Robert Mugabe had the NGO bill. It's the same bill that has been resurrected, but has actually been revamped. It's a bill that seeks to control CSOs. It's a bill that seeks to regulate the CSO space. And more chillingly, it's a bill that seeks to weed out organizations that receive funding that allows them to grow the democratic space, particularly the space that challenges and holds government to account. And so that is where our hope is. And failing to capacitate CSOs in Zimbabwe or shutting down the funding or reducing the funding is in actual fact sentencing a nation to being completely consumed by the regime. And so I understand the issue of fatigue, but this is the process of achieving democracy. When we began our conversation, Bemba, you talked about Zimbabwe being a young country and that we are at the tail end of bringing independence. So we are not that old. How old is the United States of America? How old are some of the other democracies that we talk about and that we admire? It has taken them years. It has taken them a long time to develop their strength in their institutions, their democratic institutions. And so I think this is part of the journey walk with us, work with us at different places and at different times, we are developing new strengths and we're taking new territory as we go. There comes a point where all of that adds up and the change we're looking for begins to become more evident and more obvious. But just because it hasn't happened immediately doesn't mean that it's not happening. So let's have a longer game play here than just wanting it to happen immediately.
0: Okay, understood. On this program here, we mind the gap. We mind the gap. We know for every situation, there is the reality of the situation and there is the perception of the situation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Zimbabwe being Zimbabwe with all its challenges, that gap, it's actually pretty big. What is the gap exactly? What should we know? Those of us who may have a perception of the place that may not fit the reality, what should we know about the reality? And if you are the magic wand, how would you close that gap?
1: The reality about Zimbabwe, Bemba, is that it is a nation that is on the verge of collapse and has been on the verge of collapse for many years. The perception globally sometimes is that because Zimbabweans are not rising up every day, it must mean they are either happy with it or it must mean that the nation is rebounding. It is not. The reality is that Zimbabwe has not had a day of stability since before Robert Mugabe left and even up to now. It should be known. Every single day that country is on the brink of economic collapse it is on the brink of a social collapse that's why you find that if you have a cholera outbreak in zimbabwe or a typhoid outbreak and these are diseases that have in other parts of the world have been completely eradicated but zimbabwe if we have a cholera outbreak today we are going to lose thousands of people as we did back in 2016 and 2017. And so it must be understood that this is a nation on the brink and that this is a nation that needs an emergency response in terms of helping it turn its economy around, helping it turn its democratic journey around. You ask me if I had a magic wand, big responsibility, what would I wave and yell out for change in Zimbabwe? I think there is one thing for me that would change Zimbabwe. It is free and fair elections. And I say that because democracy is a process that brings change that is sustainable. And if Zimbabwe can engage for the first time in its history in elections that are free of rigging, in elections that are free of intimidation, in elections that are genuinely by the people, as we did in 1980, on that decisive election when Robert Mugabe won and was able to become the prime minister of Zimbabwe. If we can do that, we will begin to have a different nation. That would be a magic wand that I would want to wave for Zimbabwe. The right for every individual to vote without intimidation and without rigging to happen. It will give us a different result that belongs to us.
0: Thank you very much, Ivan Mawarire. It was a pleasure to have you on into africa this afternoon.
1: Thank you very much member. It's been my honor and my hope is that we can speak again soon.
0: Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org/africa. So long.